This is the Transcend Human Podcast, a weekly show where we learn what it means to rise above the human condition. We hope the conversation today is just what you need for the week ahead. Yes, friends, welcome back to the Transcend Human Podcast. Great to be with you. September 18th, 2023. Um, we are in a series called Transcending Eschatology. We've been there for a while. Uh, this is what, part 12 already? Not only did I not think I was ever going to do a series on eschatology, but I would have never told you that it would have been this long. Because I grew up in a religious tradition where Every once in a while, they did these things called uh, evangelistic series, uh, basically end of time prophecy series. And sometimes those series would go 27, 28, sometimes 30 nights in a row, you know, maybe skipping a few nights here and there. But overall, it was literally like a 30 night commitment in order to go to these things. And so that's what I remember looking back and I definitely didn't want this to become that. However, here we are, and we're already on part 12. So there's that. Um, but I will tell you, I don't see this going much farther. We're looking at two, maybe three more episodes, and then we should wrap it all up. So that said, welcome back to the series. Um, I'm not going to walk you through episodes 1 through 11, but the information is in the show notes if you're interested in just a quick summary as to what each of those episodes were about, you can go find them there. Today, we discuss the coming global crisis and a final warning. Chapter one, the story of God's people. Chapter two, the rise of the opposition. And chapter three, the final warning. Chapter one, the story of God's people. So friends, we've turned a corner in the book of Revelation. So many of the other prophecies, letters, seals, trumpets, all of, all of these things have been looking backward, really heavy on the history, at least from the historicist point of view. But we've reached a point in Revelation where we're ready to focus on the coming calamity or the coming future that is being predicted. So one more look back at the church and where she came from, and then we're off to see the wizard, so to speak. Chapter 12 is an entire chapter dedicated to the church, where it came from, what it's been through, what's in store for it in the future. So let's dive right in and get things moving. John continues his vision or his dream, and he describes it like this. Then I witnessed in the heavens an event of great significance. Strange, right? He's had all sorts of visions and dreams about churches, letters, colored horses, trumpets, and all of that, which sound pretty scary. But he says nothing about their importance, right? Not until now. Now, this is an event of great significance. So, what is it? Well, he goes on to describe a woman clothed with a sun, standing on the moon with a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in the pains of childbirth. Then John says, I witnessed another significant event. <laughs> what? <laughs> Two in one chapter. What's going on here, right? So first the woman, next a red dragon with seven heads and ten horns with 
seven crowns on its head. His tail swept away one third of the stars of the sky, and he threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, waiting to devour her child as soon as it was born. Wow. Two significant events and an interaction that starts to build the tension. Next, it says, the woman gave birth. It was a son, born to rule all of the nations with a rod of iron. He was stalked by the dragon, but was snatched away from him and was caught up to God and the throne in heaven. After that, the woman fled into the wilderness where God had prepared a place for her for how long do you guess? 1,260 days. Then the chapter does a funny thing. It provides a little flashback to the very beginning of time on our planet. John sees where the dragon came from, and he explains it like this. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, and the dragon lost the battle. He and his angels were forced to leave heaven. This dragon can be identified as the serpent of old, the devil, or Satan, as we refer to him today. The one who tries to deceive the entire world. He was the one thrown down with his angels. Next, John hears a loud voice shouting something across the heavens. It has come at last, salvation and power thanks to Jesus. The accuser has been thrown down, and we are able to defeat him thanks to the blood of Jesus. Those who choose Jesus over the good life and were not afraid to die for the truth. So rejoice, but also Know that the devil has come to you with great anger, for he knows that he doesn't have much time left. So what did the dragon or Satan do with his anger? Well, he turned it on the church, the people of God. It says that he pursued the woman who gave birth to the child, but she was protected, given wings to escape into the wilderness, where she was cared for and protected for how long do you think? A time, times, and the dividing of time. Sound familiar? Three and a half years, or the 1,260 days that we've already mentioned numerous times in this series. Crazy how that just keeps coming up, right? So the dragon was angry, and he tried to drown the woman with a flood of water that came out of his mouth. But the earth helped her by soaking up all the water. That made the dragon even more angry, and he swore to take it out on her and the generations for all time, those who keep the commandments and believe in Jesus. Then the dragon took his place on the shore beside the sea. And that's it. A brief history and description of the battle between the church and the devil throughout time. Now, if I was a futurist, right, I would believe that All of this stuff is just end time stuff, stuff that's going to happen way down at the end of time and in a really short, probably seven year period of time. But I think it's pretty clear this chapter is just a brief recap of the battle that has been going on since the dawn of time between God and Satan, between Satan and the object of God's affection, which is us, the church. It starts with historical information but then describes how this will go on until the end of time. So let's do a quick summary. It all starts back before we were even on planet Earth. 
God was in heaven, Satan was in heaven. And for some crazy reason, Satan became patient zero when it came to the sin virus. It started somewhere inside of him and he nurtured it. And then he started talking to other, other angels about it. And before you know it, he had a third of the angels agreeing with him. They chose him instead of God. Now, this is something that I just, I have a really hard time wrapping my brain around, right? So you're, you're living in heaven where there is perfection. There is nothing evil, nothing wrong, nothing bad. And all of a sudden, within one of the angels, there's this little seed of evil that starts to grow and starts to build inside of him. And then, even when you get to the place where you can wrap your brain around that, it sits there inside of him, and God allowed him to not only continue to grow that feeling or grow that idea, but God even allowed him to spread it. God allowed him to talk to probably all of the angels, almost like our situation here on earth, where we have to decide whether we believe in God or whether we want to go a different way. It's like God allowed every single angel in heaven to hear both sides for a period of time. And then at some point, all of the angels made up their mind and a third of them decided to hang out with Satan. But at some point it had to end, right? And it did. It ended up in a war, a war in heaven. We're told in the Bible that God and his angels fought against Satan and his angels. And at the end of the war, Satan was cast out of heaven with a third of the angels following him and they were banished to earth. And that's where we were, right? Like if you believe the creation story that God created Adam and Eve, and then they started populating the earth, that's what Satan and his angels came down to. And as the population on the earth grew, God always had a group of people that followed him. And this is the group of people that Satan was always out to attack. You can call it God's people. You can call it the Israelites. You can call it Christians, whatever you want to call it. It's a group of people that over time have stayed true to the things that God taught them. And ultimately in prophecy, that's what we refer to as the woman, the church. The church that eventually gave rise to the line of David and through the line of David eventually came the birth of Jesus. So the passages that we just read in Revelation are really talking about this battle between Jesus and the church, the people who followed him called the woman and Satan or the dragon and this battle, right? And the only reason it's a battle is because Satan is angry and he wants to do away with the woman or the church because they followed Jesus and not him. So that's what was going on all the way up until the time of Jesus and his birth. Satan tried to kill Jesus when he was born, but he failed. Jesus eventually did die, but only after doing what he came here to do. He lived a perfect life. He spent three and a half years doing ministry, teaching people the truth about God's love. And when he died, technically, it was on his terms in order to perfectly match up with other prophecies from the ancient scriptures. When Jesus was caught back up to heaven, Satan turned his anger again on the church or the woman. 
And he did everything that he could to lure them away or kill them, whatever worked best at the time. At some point, he used the Roman Empire and eventually the Catholic Church. We've talked about this, right? The Dark Ages. For 1,260 years, God's people lived in hiding and fear from the church, being controlled by Satan. But God protected them. Many of those who escaped persecution escaped into the wilderness, into the mountains, where they were protected there by the harsh conditions. And it doesn't end there. Satan is still angry. He still doubles down. He's still swearing to take out anyone who keeps the commandments and believes in Jesus. Okay, before we move into the next chapter, I wanted to briefly touch on symbolism because I think it's pretty cool. So one of the things that you see in apocalyptic prophecy is symbolism, a lot of it. For example, in Daniel, we saw symbols used for civilizations, right? Babylon was a head of gold in one dream. He was a lion or it was a lion in another dream. And then at some point we see things uh, starting to have horns, right? The 10 horns. And we learned that the 10 horns represented 10 kingdoms or powers. So we understand when we see a horn in prophecy, it's probably talking about a king, a kingdom, or a power. And that's the sort of thing that we see in this chapter of Revelation. We see symbols, right, that can actually be decoded by simply reading the rest of the Bible. So here's just one example. When you see the word water or waters, we see this a lot in prophecy, right? Where it talks about the dragon standing beside the sea or the beast coming up out of the sea. So how do we know what the sea, the water, or the waters represent? Simple. We find a verse in the Bible that tells us, like Revelation 17, 15, that says, Then the angel said to me, The waters where the prostitute is ruling represent masses of people of every nation and language. So now we know what water means, or waters, or the sea, right? So whenever we see those words in prophecy, we can understand that it represents great numbers of people. That said, here are just a few of the symbols that we read about in this chapter and what they refer to. So we've already talked about the woman. And what does the woman represent? The church or the people of God. We saw the use of the sun and the moon and 12 stars. The sun represents God, God's glory, God's favor. The moon is that which reflects the sun. So quite possibly the moon can refer to the church or the Bible, right? Things that reflect God. Next, we have the crown of 12 stars. Stars typically represent angels, but this could also re refer to other things like the 12 disciples that walked with Jesus and kept the church moving after his death. Next, we have the dragon. The dragon has always represented Satan, the devil, Lucifer, right? Then we have the dragon's seven heads with seven crowns. This really illustrates that Satan will have the help of another power, the papacy, the Catholic Church, and that the crowns represent political power, not just religious or spiritual power. Next, we have ten horns, ten minor powers that will rule at the end of time. Next, we have a third of the stars. So we talked about the stars being angels. So a third of the angels is probably referring to that group that Lucifer took with him when he left heaven. 
Next, we have the child that the woman bears. This refers to Jesus or the Messiah. And then we have the wilderness, kind of the opposite of the sea, right? You've got the land and you've got the sea. The sea represents lots of people. The wilderness refers to uninhabited places or places away from people. So there you go. Pretty cool to see how each of these symbols actually has meaning and that most of these things are described in other places in the Bible, allowing us to be very confident in how we should interpret them when reading prophecy. Chapter 2, The Rise of the Opposition. So chapter 13, to me, is the epitome of apocalyptic prophecy, the creme de la creme, the pivotal moment in the story. You would say the plot thickens, or the gotcha, the twist, the big reveal, all of those things and more. When we finally make the move from the more historical information to what's coming in the future, this is kind of ground zero. Chapter 13 sets the stage. It reveals the players. And here, there is no looking back. From here on out, we are headlong rushing toward the end of time. Time is now moving quickly, pushing us closer and closer to the end of all things. As the church of Laodicea, we are the final church. And we have no clue how long that time will be, right? We don't have any idea how long the church age of Laodicea will last. But here's a little math problem, um, just to help us see the times we're living in. Remember we said that the seven churches represented seven periods of time, portions of time from the death of Jesus all the way to the end of time. Well, what if we add up all of those and get an average? What would that look like? So let's try it. I mean, these, these numbers are by no means um, set in stone. These are just theologians' ideas about how these different periods of time went. So if we add up all of the suggested time periods, all right, from the first six churches, we get a roughly 1,800 years. Divide that by six, and we get 300 years. So on average, each of the church ages is around 300 years in length. Some shorter, obviously, and some much longer. That's the definition of an average, by the way. So where are we at? As the Church of Laodicea, if Philadelphia truly ended in 1844, then Laodicea has been trucking along for about 179 years. Now, that really means nothing, right? Because the Bible is clear. Nobody knows the day or the hour when Jesus will return. But given that the shortest period of time was around 70 years and the longest was around 1,027, we're already well past the shortest and we're about 120 years away from the average. Again, this means nothing, but it's still very interesting to look at to realize where we're at on Earth's timeline. Okay, back on track. Revelation chapter 13. So, no introductions or prologues. John literally just dives right back in and describes the next thing that he sees. John says, I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. It had seven heads, ten horns, and there were ten crowns on each of the horns. And on each horn there were names written, names that blasphemed God. This beast looked like a leopard but it had the feet of a bear, and it had the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave it power, 
a throne and great authority. And then one of the heads looked wounded beyond repair, but this fatal wound was healed. And the whole world was amazed and gave allegiance to the beast. They worshiped the dragon for giving the beast so much power. And they also worshiped the beast. And they said, who, who is as great as this beast and who is able to fight against it? Then the beast was allowed to speak great blasphemies against God. And he was allowed to do whatever he wanted for, how long do you think? 42 months, which is what? Three and a half years, which is 1,260 days. Back to our little time period there of the dark ages. So whatever this beast is, he was allowed to do these things for 1,260 years. And during this time, he did the following. He blasphemed God. He slandered God's name and his dwelling. He slandered those in heaven. And he waged war against God's people. Now, this power, the beast, was allowed to have authority over every tribe, language, nation, and people. The people who belonged to this world worshipped the beast, those whose names were not found in the book of life. Then John throws out a few lines that are a bit disconcerting. He appeals to everyone listening and says, Understand that people will go to prison and people will be killed, but God's holy people must endure this persecution patiently and remain faithful. Next, John sees a beast coming up out of the earth. It is said to have two horns, like those of a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon, and it exercised all the authority of the first beast, the beast from the sea. And this land beast required that the entire earth and all of its people worship the sea beast who had had the fatal wound. And he did amazing miracles, even making fire flash down from the sky in the presence of people. With all of these miracles, he was allowed to perform on behalf of the first beast, and he deceived all of the people who belonged to this world. He ordered the people to make a great statue or a great image to the sea beast that was fatally wounded but came back to life. He was then permitted to give life to this statue or this image so that it could speak. Then the statue commanded or the image commanded that anyone refusing to worship it must die. In order to make this happen, the statue required everyone to receive a mark on their right hands and their foreheads. And anyone who did not take this mark would not be allowed to buy or sell. This mark is the name or number representing his name. Let those who understand calculate the number of the man this number is 666. Now, those of you who have followed along should have a pretty good idea where this is headed, right? So the beast from the sea should sound pretty familiar already because it should really sound like the little horn we talked about from the book of Daniel, which is the papacy or the Catholic church. Now, I can hear people already saying, you can't say that. You can't say that. You don't have proof. But at the end of the day, we kind of do. So here are just 11 things that basically fulfill this part of prophecy. So 11 things that the Catholic Church or the papacy 
did or does that fit with the prophecies we've just read. Number one, it would rise among the 10 divisions of the Roman Empire. Number two, it would begin to rule after 476 AD, which is true. In 538, Justinian decreed that the church had the power over the entire world and could basically exercise political authority at that time. Number three, the church would uproot three of the ten horns. History reveals that in order to gain complete control, the church had to wipe out three powerful adversaries, the Ostrogoths, the Vandals, and the Haruli. Now, interestingly enough, this was all completed near 538 AD as well. Number four, this power would be led by one man, so the Pope definitely fits that um, interpretation. Number five, the horn would be different than all of the other ten horns, which again is true. This is the only horn that not only exercised political power, but also had religious power. Number six, this horn would speak blasphemies against God. Now, the Catholic Church basically claims that the Pope is God on earth and has complete authority. Also, the Church created the concept of the priesthood and the, the understanding that priests alone can forgive sin, basically standing in between God and people. Number seven, this horn or this power would persecute God's people. We've already seen this, right? We've talked about it numerous times. The Dark Ages, the church was a persecuting power, torturing and killing people who did not believe as they believed. Number eight, the power would change times and laws. Uh, this is also true. The Catholic Church claims to be able to alter the Bible itself. So in the Catholic Bible, they've basically removed the second commandment, and then they divided the 10th commandment into two. That way, there's still 10 commandments. And they also claim authority to change what day we worship on. So obviously in the Bible, the, the people of God always worshiped on Saturday, the seventh day, right? They called it the Sabbath. However, the Catholic Church decided that that is no longer necessary. Instead, we should worship on Sunday because that's the day Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, there is no biblical reference for this change, but the Catholic Church claims that it doesn't need one because the Pope is able to make those kinds of decisions since he is God on earth. Number nine, there would be a deadly wound. So in the passages which we just read from Revelation 13, it talked about the beast who appeared to die, but then was revived, right? It's called the deadly wound. And this can be seen in 1798 when all of the power that the Catholic Church had was stripped away at one time. It was at the end of the 1,260 years, and the Pope was taken hostage and eventually died in captivity. Number 10. So this is the ominous one about the number of a man, 666. And this has always been a stretch for me, but I still find it interesting nonetheless. The name that some of the more recent popes have used is Vicarious Philae Dei, which translates representative of the Son of God. 
Now, this name often shows up in print. It shows up on the Pope's regalia, sometimes on his mitre hat, things like that. And if you take this Latin name and apply the numerical values of Roman numerals, it adds up to 666. Again, interesting, but not super interesting because there are numerous people in history where if you take their given name and add it all up, it adds up to 666. So I'm much more likely to accept that 666 is an interesting fact that it, that that name for the Pope works out to 666, but I'm much more likely to believe that there's something else going on here. And I think we've talked about this before, but if the number seven is the number for perfection, then six isn't quite seven. And 666 is an obvious attempt to become seven, right? Or to become God or to become perfect without actually attaining it, right? The repetitive sixes show that there's an attempt to be perfect, but you never get there, which is a, a super interesting illustration of not only the way Satan is working, trying to be God, but it's also interesting how we will never attain perfection by trying to be our best versions of ourselves as well. Finally, number 11, the time periods. So we've talked about this numerous times, right? Three and a half prophetic years, 42 months, time, times, and half a time, 1,260 days. Applying the day to a year principle, all of these work out to 1,260 years. Now, the persecution levied by the Catholic Church during the Dark Ages lasted for that very specific amount of time. And this time period is shouted out in scripture, right? From 538 AD when they received the power until 1798 when it received the deadly wound. It's mentioned over and over and over. And this is perhaps one of the strongest indications that the little horn from Daniel and the sea beast from Revelation 13 are referring to the same thing, the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, so obviously futurists do not view the sea beast as the Catholic Church because they believe that all prophecies refer to the very end of time. However, this is a pretty standard interpretation from a historicist point of view that has been around for a really long time. Now, the beast from the earth or the land beast is another story altogether. Spoiler alert, the beast from the earth is the United States of America. I know, shoot me now, but um, there are a lot of people who understand this to be true. And here are the reasons. First, the beast rose out of the land. We've already talked about if the sea represents a lot of people, the land represents very few people, right? So obviously when the United States started, it was land, right? With very few inhabitants. Number two, this beast rose as the sea beast was losing power. So if the fatal wound occurred in 1798, this fits with the U.S. gaining its independence around 1776. And finally, this beast starts as a lamb with two horns. So the U.S. began as a nation where people could be free from tyranny, right? The phrase, with liberty and justice for all, is very interesting given that the lamb is said to have two horns. Maybe the horns are referring to this, but that's a stretch for me as well, because 
everywhere else in prophecy, a horn represents a power or kingdom. So I'm really not sure why there would be a difference in this context, but maybe it's a dual party thing, Republicans and Democrats, right? Two powers fighting for dominance. Who knows? But this lamb-like behavior eventually changes, right? John sees this power transition from the lamb into a megaphone for the dragon. So it eventually partners with the sea beast and gains authority from it. And with this authority, it does some pretty bad things, right? It requires everyone to worship the sea beast. It does miracles, like making fire flash down from the sky. It deceives people. It orders people to make a statue or an image to the sea beast. And it provides a mark that can be taken, signifying people's allegiance to the statue or the image. Now, without that mark, they won't be able to buy or sell, right? They're kind of out of luck. And if they don't worship the sea beast or its image or take the mark, they will most likely be killed. Now, I'm not sure if all historicists believe that the sea beast is the Catholic Church and the land beast is the United States of America. In fact, Wikipedia suggests the papacy being the sea beast has been a staple of the historicist interpretation since the beginning. But when it starts to talk about the U.S. being the land beast, it specifically pins this down on Seventh-day Adventists, right? Suggesting that other historicists may have a different interpretation. However, these other explanations are very few and far between. I link to a historicist article in the show notes from contraryworld.com. Now, I'm assuming this is not a Seventh-day Adventist article. And when it discussed Revelation 13, it talks about the sea beast and then skips right over the land beast as if it wasn't even part of the chapter. And this is my hypothesis, that aside from the Seventh-day Adventist view of the beast from the land, there really aren't many other good explanations or examples that other people choose to, to put forth. Chapter 3, The Final Warning. Okay, so that was Revelation 13. I told you it was good, right? Climax, big reveal, set up for the end of time. All good stuff. A little dark, of course, as we're starting to get into the whole one world government thing and a world where you really shouldn't be looking forward to when it comes down to it. I'm also guessing that many of you didn't see the whole USA thing coming, right? It's so easy to read, read apocalyptic prophecy in terms of the old stuff and civilizations like Babylon and Greece and Rome, or to push everything down to the end of time where it can also remain sort of abstract and distant from us, right? But why do we do that? I mean, my guess is that it all comes down to fear or anxiety, right? We don't want to think that we're actually living smack dab in the middle of it all. In fact, we aren't even in the middle. We're so much closer to the tail end of it all than anywhere else in time. And knowing that, don't you think that the Bible might have something to say about us, about our time, our civilization, our governments, and our ruling powers? Look at it this way. The U.S. is the most powerful country in the world right now. Debatable, as we're obviously doing everything in our power to derail that progress, but it's probably still true. And if that's the case, why wouldn't the U.S. be part of biblical prophecy? Why would we get a free pass and be removed from this unraveling story that the Bible is presenting? 
When you look back at all the other civilizations, the kingdoms and the powers that the Bible talk about, what do they all have in common? They all played a direct role in impacting God and God's people and the truth that they carried. In other words, Babylon is part of prophecy because they took Israel captive and tried to rule over them. Rome is still part of prophecy because they held sway in a similar way. They controlled Israel. They attempted to kill Jesus at his birth. They worked with the Jewish leaders and eventually convicted and killed Jesus. And they persecuted the Christians that lived after Jesus' death. Obvious connections to the overarching Bible story, right? So this is why we don't see other civilizations in prophecy. Civilizations like the Incas, the Aztecs, some of the Eastern civilizations. Because none of these are impacting the overall story of God and Jesus, right? That's why none of them show up in prophecy. But then again, why would they, right? They may have been powerful. They may have been in power for hundreds, if not thousands of years. But if they had no impact on the story of the Bible, at least that we know of, then why would they be in the Bible? So some would say the same about us, right? About the United States. What do we have to do with Bible prophecy? Which is true, right? We're often viewed as a Christian nation, though that's debatable as well. And we're heading farther and farther away from that, right? So then why would we be part of apocalyptic prophecy in the Bible? Well, maybe because we will be one of the major players at the end of time. Maybe we will take it upon ourselves to tell the world what to do. I mean, it's not like we shy away from that now, right? I mean, we're pretty full of ourselves. We, on some level, try to govern, govern the world already. We have military bases all over the world. We've created alliances that require democracy to flourish. And then we punish countries if they don't conform to that. I mean, we stick our noses in other countries' business all the time. We invade, we conquer, we aid revolutions, all in order to push our agenda and ensure that we remain on top. So to me, it isn't a stretch to think that in the end, it will be the U.S. on top, telling the rest of the world what to do, especially if it goes down the way the Bible describes it. Look at it this way. We've often viewed our country and our constitution as bulletproof, right? Guaranteeing our way of life forever, the freedoms we enjoy, the opportunities we have, stuff like that. And if someone told you back in 1995 that we would eventually lose some of those freedoms, you would probably have laughed and said, not a chance, bro. This is the best country on earth. But on September 11th, 2001, we saw just how easy it was for things to change. All it took was a terrorist attack on our soil, and we immediately gave up all sorts of rights, right? Almost overnight. According to the ACLU, the Patriot Act, passed 45 days after 9-11, allowed the government to spy on ordinary Americans by expanding the authority to monitor phone and email communication, collect bank and credit reporting records, and track the activity of innocent Americans on the internet. While most Americans think it was created to catch terrorists, the Patriot Act actually turns regular citizens into suspects. Now... Some of this we didn't fully understand, to be honest. But at the time, we were totally okay with it, right? Because we were scared. We wanted to protect our country. Looking back now, we can see how the good that came from that also included a loss of freedom. Next up, 
COVID-19, 2020. Think about all of the freedoms that were called into question during that. Everything from lockdowns to forced closures, being forced to social distance, wear masks, take tests, and even take vaccines in order to access certain things, to, to have certain freedoms or opportunities like travel. Now, I'm not saying that there was anything wrong with some of those things and even with the vaccine. But when it starts to be forced on people, it kind of goes against that whole freedom thing that we put in our constitution. And finally, I wasn't sure whether to connect this to the pandemic or not, but as we have become more and more politically polarized in this country, the ideologies we have also have become more and more extreme, which led to the removal of some of our basic freedoms recently, right? The overturn of Roe v. Wade. Did you ever think that would happen? And that was just the start. I mean, the Supreme Court has said that it wants to re-examine all sorts of things, things like contraception, gay marriage, and even interracial marriage. So yes, things can change almost overnight. And before you know it, our freedoms are going out the window. Our country begins to look a little more and more like a dictatorship than a democracy. Which is why I believe the U.S. is part of prophecy, because we're moving in that direction. We're moving toward a world where freedoms are removed and select groups of people are allowed to set new religious rules that everyone else is required to follow. Sound familiar? We call it the Dark Ages, when the Catholic Church held this same sort of power. And in the future, with the technology we'll have at our disposal, the entire world will experience the Dark Ages all over again right before Jesus returns. Okay, there's a lot more I could say about that, but let's wrap things up with the final warning. So in Revelation 14, John continues to describe the things that he sees in his dreams. He sees the Lamb, or Jesus, standing on Mount Zion with 144,000 people. These people had the name of God and Jesus written on their foreheads. There was music, there was singing, the four living beings were there, the 24 elders were there, and the song was very special because only the 144,000 could learn it. They had lived pure lives and were without blame, so they were the ones who were able to sing the song. Again, we've already talked about the 144,000 and that it's probably a symbolic number, representing all of those at the end of time who chose to follow Jesus over the world. From there, John describes the final warning, the messages from three angels to the world, preparing the world for the soon coming time of trouble. So let's walk through those. The first angel's message, fear God, he shouted, give him glory for the time has come when he will sit as judge, worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all the springs of water. Now, two important pieces here. Uh, it talks about the judgment what I believe to be the investigative judgment, that thing that started in 1844, simply explaining that the time has come. And next, it brings up the importance of worship. That worship could be the most important thing at the end of time. Where did this language come from? This idea that God made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. Believe it or not, you can feel, find that exact same language in the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, 11, in the fourth commandment, it has to do with worshiping God. Also, remember the stories of Daniel? 
every single story had to do with worship, right? Interesting. Okay, second angel's message. Babylon is fallen. That great city is fallen because she made all the nations of the world drink the wine of her passionate immorality. Now, you'll have to take my word for this one, but Babylon in prophecy refers to Babylon, but it also refers refers to the perversion of truth or a false religion, basically taking something that God meant for good and using it for evil and removing God and replacing him with something else, even ourselves. It started with the Tower of Babel. Sound familiar? Babel, Babylon. After the flood, they built a tower so hot, so tall and so high that it reached up into the clouds. And the whole reason that they were building that tower was so that humans would no longer need God. They would be protected from him in case there was another flood. Now, eventually, this led to the Babylonian civilization, where false, pagan, all sorts of religions flourished. And so it continues today. Babylon has become symbolic of religious confusion and the mixing of truth and lies. So the second angel is just warning the world that this craziness of Babylon has fallen, right? It's going to be wiped out because of its immorality and the lies that it promotes. Now, why is this an important message? Well, because there are millions of people following her. There are millions of people involved in Babylon, right? And they think they're on the right side. So this warning suggests that the entire world as we know it will cease to exist. Babylon will fall. So come out of her as soon as possible and choose the right side. And finally, we have the third angel's message. So the third angel flies across the sky and says, anyone who worships the beast and his statue or his image or who accepts his mark in their hand or their forehead must drink the wine of God's anger. It has been poured out full strength into God's cup of wrath, and they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, and they will have no relief day or night for they have worshiped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. Whoa, that one is a final warning, to be sure. Pretty harsh language and pretty brutal. But in essence, those who choose the world over Jesus will receive the same thing that Babylon receives. It will fall and it will cease to exist because God's kingdom is coming and nothing will stand in its way. God's kingdom will be built for those who chose him. So they can return to the perfection that God intended for them back at the beginning, back before the sin virus. So the basic summary is this. Angel 1, the investigative judgment has started in heaven, so worship God. Angel 2, stay out of this world system that has taken over the world and seems so popular because everyone seems to be doing it. And angel 3, there are two choices at the end of time. Based on your choice, you will either receive the mark of the beast or the seal of God. So choose wisely. Now, again, this is a historicist interpretation, to be sure, and probably with a pretty heavy Seventh-day Adventist slant. Just Google three angels' messages, 
and the majority of the results will be from either Seventh-day Adventist churches or the General Conference of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, or from SDA pastors, theologians, and universities. Which is a little strange to me, because it seems like everyone would have something to say about Revelation 14, right? I mean, it's pretty succinct. It seems to be pretty important. I mean, we've read all the way through Daniel and heard a bunch of stuff about history and the end of time in Revelation. And then here come these three angels with this big final warning. I mean, doesn't that just shout importance to you? It does to me. And yet, like I said, why is everyone so silent about this, right? As it turns out, futurists most likely lump everything into the end of time during the tribulation. Uh, I read things about Babylon being physically rebuilt at the end of time, stuff like that. But it seems pretty clear to me that Babylon is used to symbolize any institution that runs counter to God. A one-world government, a one-world religion, or whatever that might look like at the end, it's a power that tries to lead the entire world away from the one true God. A power that sets up a requirement so that they know who is loyal to them. It's called the mark, or the mark of the beast. And people argue all the time about what it might be. Some believe it's a physical thing, like a computer chip that goes in your hand or your forehead or, you know, something that forces you to do certain things. And when people like Elon Musk start companies like Neuralink, <laughs> I put a, a link to it in the show notes, it's not hard to see how it could go in that direction. But friends, even though that conspiracy theory is exciting and it seems to fit well with every apocalyptic thriller Hollywood has ever produced, I just don't think it's that technical. I think that the ultimate reality is that the mark of the beast and the seal of God, whichever one we choose to take, is much simpler than that. Revelation describes the mark as something we take in the hand or in the forehead. The hand represents our actions. The forehead represents our thoughts and our beliefs, the things that we've chosen in our mind. Interestingly enough, Israelites back in the day used to tie these little leather pouches around their hands and around their foreheads. And inside these leather pouches was a small version of the law, the Ten Commandments. It was a physical reminder to them to not only know the law, to believe that it was important, but to then actually do what they knew was right. And I don't think it's going to be all that different at the end of time. We're going to have two options. And we will need to choose with our thoughts and our actions. Okay, let's wrap things up. So the chapter wraps up with a description about the end days when Jesus returns. It says, He will come back to earth on a white cloud with a gold crown with a sharp sickle to harvest the earth. There were two other angels with him, one with a sickle as well, and the other that was able to use fire to destroy things. And then it talks about a harvest. A harvest of grapes. The grapes were cut from the vines. They were dropped in the wine press. As with any harvest, right, there is usable byproducts and there are unusable byproducts. When it comes to wheat, there is the grain and then there's the chaff. The grain is kept to make bread and the chaff is either scattered by the wind or burned. Similarly, the wine press removes the grape juice, which is kept and used but the remaining elements are not needed, so they are discarded in a variety of ways. Now, I'm not an expert on harvesting crops, nor do I claim to be, and I'm sure theologians would have a field day 
<laughs> if you just ask them about this final passage in more detail. But it sounds pretty simple to me. It just reinforces what we just discussed about the mark of the beast and the seal of God, right? It's an illustration of the fact that at the end of time, there will only be two options leading to two camps of people, right? Extreme polarization, one represented by the wine that is kept and one represented by the leftover elements that are discarded. It's really that simple. And yet at the same time, that devastating, right? A very solemn reminder that we will all need to make up our minds about Jesus and the sooner the better. So let's land the plane. Um, apologies that this one got a little dark there toward the end, but remember, Revelation isn't for the faint of heart. It doesn't pull punches. Uh, it's, it's the ultimate storyline of our existence, right? It's the battle that has gone on since the beginning of time, and it's the climax at the end of time, the conclusion, the resolution, the ultimate victory for the oppressed throughout time. I mean, it's a very somber thing to behold, it's kind of like being on a jury where the defendant could possibly receive the death penalty. You, you think about the ramifications, right? You think about the finality of your decision and what that could mean for the defendant, even if it was a just and fair trial according to the law. But that's the way it is for us and the decision that we need to make before the end comes. Whether that be the end of our life, whether that be the end of time, that is a very important decisions with eternal ramifications. Friends, as we wrap things up today, I just want to thank you again for being along for the ride. Um, we're really getting close to the end of this series. Just a few more and we should be able to wrap things up. Next week, we're going to dive into the seven last plagues, the battle of Armageddon, and the prostitute or the woman and the beast. Until then... Have a great week, everyone, and as always, keep transcending human. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Transcend Human podcast. If you're interested in the show notes for this episode, head on over to transcendhuman.com forward slash podcast and navigate to the episode you're looking for. On the website, you'll also find blog posts, podcast series, and other helpful resources to help you navigate the Transcend Human ecosystem. You'll also find links to our social media channels, and as always, if you have questions, feel free to contact us at info at transcendhuman.com. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you back here on Monday morning.